The Guardian. Welcome to The Guardian and Visit London's Pod Tours. These tours are designed to be taken on location as guided walks. They should work in real time, but we've divided them into chapters and there's a map too that you can download so that you don't get out of sync. If you're listening at home, these podcasts should still work as a documentary in their own right. And if that's the case, then sit back and enjoy. But if you're walking with us, go to Oxford Circus Tube and up to number 66 Portland Place to the Royal Institute of British Architecture. There you'll find Jonathan Glancy, the Guardian's architecture and design correspondent, and he'll help you to see this very well-trodden part of London anew. My walk is in and around Oxford Circus. It's an area that's mostly famous for its shopping, shopping all year round, seven days a week. And it's not really the sort of place you'd expect to come and look very studiously and closely and lovingly at architecture and art. There are streets here that seem interminably bland, long, wide, often grey. They just seem rat runs for traffic. They have no character. And yet, behind these rather bland facades along these big streets just off Oxford Street are some of the most intriguing places, institutions, interiors and art to be found anywhere in London. On our walk we're going to discover secret locations, we're going to find one of the most mysterious churches in London, we're going to find high art above one of the most popular shops in London, so we're going to see a London that exists above the shop windows, a London that the birds see very easily, but we often fail to look at ourselves because we're always in such a hurry. I'm standing outside 66 Portland Place. This is the headquarters of the Royal Institute of British Architecture and I suppose the epicentre of architecture, not just in London but in Britain. So it's a perfect place to start. What a strange building it is. I'm going to take us inside 66 Portland Place. Now truly, through these bronze portals have passed some of the greatest architects of the past two centuries. Inside the building is like a great ocean liner from the early 1930s. In front of me is a gigantic great stair made of marble, slate, bronze, etched glass, rising up through the great height of this enormous institution. It's very impressive, but more impressive is this list of people that have walked through these doors. The names carved into the wall in classical Roman lettering are the winners of the Royal Gold Medal for Architecture. Frank Lloyd Wright. Look at this beautiful Roman lettering I'm running my fingers through. Le Corbusier. Mies van der Rohe, Buckminster Fuller, These are the architects who really have shaped our modern worlds and they've shaped even the look of the streets around us. But the point of all this, I suppose, is that these are the architects, the great architects, whose ideas filter down and shape the streets that we walk through, even in an area as unlooked at, as unobserved as Oxford Circus. 
The latest name to be added to this wall will be that of David Chipperfield, who's won the Royal Gold Medal of Architecture for 2010. Now, he's going to be presented with that medal early next year, and his name will appear in this lobby in that lovely Percy Smith lettering. As it happens, David lives with his wife Evelyn Stern and family just down the road here in Portland Place. It's an area that's not known as a residential district, and I'm going to go and see Evelyn and ask her what it's like to live here. It's very cosmopolitan. It's urban and it's cosmopolitan. It reminds the foreigner like me of cities like Ilona or Madrid or Paris, you, or even New York's, you know, Park Avenue. And it's probably the only street in London that is a very sort of urban avenue. And it doesn't have a villagey feeling about it. And maybe it doesn't have that feeling that I think you Brits love, that village feeling. And I'm a bit horrified, for example, because there's, I think, a whole initiative that desperately jealous of Marylebone High Street and Marylebone Village now wants to call this Portland Village, apparently. I think there is a tendency in you Brits to love that village atmosphere, no? While if you like city living, I think there is no more urban place in this in London. And you, you can, you walk everywhere. You walk to the theatre, you walk to restaurants, you walk to the shops. And it is very cosmopolitan. When you walk down the street here, Evelyn, do, do you ever look up at the buildings with an architectural artist eye or do you scuttle past like everybody else? Oh, I probably do a bit of both. I'm leaving 66 Portland Place now and I'm going to cross the road right in front where you can see the Chinese embassy. You can't miss it because it's got the Chinese red flag flying from the first floor balcony. Portland Place is a wide avenue. It's actually quite unusual for London because London's not really a city with big set-piece avenues. Uh, but this was planned as a whole by John Nash, the Regency architect, as a main thoroughfare between Regent's Park, which is just to the north, two minutes to the north, and Oxford Circus, and eventually down to Piccadilly Circus and St James's Park and Westminster. I've just turned left now at the Chinese Embassy, and I'm going to cross Weymouth Street and head straight south down Portland Place. careful while crossing the road, but if you look quickly on your left at Weymouth Street, you'll see the post office tower or British Telecom Tower soaring above the rooftops, a bit of 60s high-tech modernism. You'll find lots of uh, building works going on at embassies. They're always stripping themselves out and putting in fancy new offices. You'll find statues of generals in plumed hats sitting on horses. This is very much a street of Britain at its most powerful a hundred years ago, some avenue of empire, really. And you'll find, of course, as a result of that, all these flags flying. They're not British flags, they're flags of various embassies and consulates. Who knows what goes on inside these buildings? If you also look up you'll see that Robert Adam, the famous 18th century architect, had a big hand here. In fact, he, with his family, planned this street, and some of the buildings are absolutely beautiful. Stop here for a moment beside number 37, Winsley Court, an indifferent building, but look directly across the road to number 48, and you'll see a perfect piece of Robert Adam architecture. Robert Adam was the great... British architect of the 18th century who created a style that was at once slightly flamboyant 
and discreetly so. So look up and you'll see lots of Etruscan detailing in the buildings. Little detailing from a Roman fashion, looking back to Etruscan art just before the Roman Empire, medallions on the walls. It's just a little bit shiny and flashy, a bit like a um, city suit that the bankers wear, where the silk linings, that little bit flashy, but the outside very discreet. Now I'm coming up to New Cavendish Street, where we're going to turn right. It says one way on the signs, and we're only going to go one way. As we turn the corner into New Cavendish Street, you start to understand that we're on a grid of streets. It's very rare for London. It's something you expect to find in New York or in European cities like Madrid or Barcelona. The delight of these streets is that the big houses, they needed stables, they needed servants, they needed deliverers to serve the houses, and those were tucked away in streets we call mews. This area is crisscrossed with mews, and they're all still here. Look up to your left and you'll see a sign, Duchess Mews, W1, City of Westminster. Duchess Mews is one of my favourites. And we're going to go in there, but really be careful crossing the road because the traffic is Grand Prix stuff. Here's Duchess Mews. It's a very short street, it's still cobbled. And one of the very special things for me, at any rate, and I'm sure perhaps for you, if you've watched the films or get hold of the DVDs or seen the repeats on television, is that this is where the great 1960s television series, The Avengers, was filmed. The original starring the great Diana Rigg and Patrick McNee as John Steed and Mrs. Peel. Now, up above in one of these muse houses, which one could it be? Very hard to say. I think it's this one here on my right with an arched window on the ground floor and a double black door and discreet Georgian windows above. This is where John Steed lived. What happened is we discussed where Steed was and so on and decided on a, a muse because of its discretion. This whole witty fantasy was created by Brian Clemens, who wrote the original pilot episode for The Avengers in 1961, and was a script editor, associate producer, and main script writer for The Avengers series that ran on ITV between 1961 and 1969. This year, he even won an OBE for his work as a writer. I was in creative charge, so I would say, well, find me a muse. But the idea of the muse is discretion, really, because you can come and go much more easily than other thoroughfares and also you can surveil it. If you're on the inside looking out, it's almost defensive. It's got an air of secrecy about it because although they were, I think they were originally groom's cottages, they later became a place to put your mistress. It would be a reflection of the man himself. The stars you might expect to see here when the Avengers were being filmed were great actresses like Honor Blackman and, of course, the great, great, wonderful Diana Rigg, who went on to become one of our leading Shakespearean actors. They would have been darting around here in and out of these doors and, of course, Patrick Meneas, John Steed, bursting in on one of these great Bentleys. I mean, it just... The idea of coming in here on those great Bentleys just suits the street so perfectly. I remember working all those years on the Avengers and laughing every day. It was the happiest experience of, of my entire life, really.
leaving the world of the Avengers and television fantasy, I'm walking to the end of Duchess Mews, stopping to look at the building in front, which is such a curious thing. It's a rebuild of a much older building originally developed by Adam. It looks a bit like a cinema front. But what I love are the sphinxes on either side of the first floor windows. You don't often see that in London. Strange little detail from ancient Egypt. But if we turn by that building, turning left into Duchess Street at the bottom of Duchess Mews, we walk across to the bottom of Portland Place, and there is Broadcasting House, the new building in front of you and stretching further away and curving round the street like some great old ocean liner is the original Broadcasting House from the early 30s, designed by the architect Valmeyer. This has taken us from the world of television to the world of radio. Inside Broadcasting House, there are hundreds of radio producers translating the worlds around them into audio, into sounds that we can hear, into radio programmes. Sound, 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 sound must be free. I wonder, though, if they ever stop during their busy lives and look at the building they work in. I love the Portland stone. It's fantastic that they've kept the original shell of the building. There's a picture inside of when it was bombed during the Second World War, and there's a hole in the wall where a bomb hit it, and it's exactly where the editor of You and Yours now sits. Up above, there's a huge sculpture by Eric Gill, and there's a very funny tale attached to it. I, I believe it's Prospero and Ariel, and uh, I think there's a story about when it was being carved it was carved in situ by Eric Gill who was um, not wearing any underwear under his smock So what was Eric Gill up to and why did he cause a big public upset over his statue of Prospero and Ariel? Well Prospero, nothing wrong with him, look he's a, an old fellow with a big grey beard and long flowing robe, covered from neck to toe. Ariel the spirit's child is naked and uh, his genitalia are on prominent display. Eric Gill was a real old pervert, I mean, absolutely true, obsessed with penises, and in this case, he carved the boy with an enormous penis, which really was a provocation. I mean, quite absurd and silly, really, but Eric Gill liked to cause an affront. He liked to be a bit rude, and uh, people were deeply offended, and in the end, he had to... Um, do more than circumcise Ariel, he had to chop quite a length off the boy's member. And of course it was the BBC stentorian, fierce, evangelically religious Director General Lord Reith who insisted that Gill reduce the size of Ariel's willy. <laughs> well if that's a little boy then it, it seems quite appropriate really. Slightly higher again to your left you'll find a flagpole taller than the radio mast with the Union flag, the Union Jack, flushing away up there. You really do feel as if the building's just been, it has been anchored here, and that with a strong puff of wind, the whole thing might sail off up to Regent's Park. Now, walk down south from Broadcasting House, where Portland Place becomes Upper Regent Street. We're going to go down here, cross the road and turn left into Margaret Street. And it's in Margaret Street that there's a very special architectural treat indeed. So we cross Cavendish Place. Interview. 
listening to the local Anglo-Saxon language and the friendly locals and <laughs> move swiftly on. Keep walking along past some chain restaurants and the big facade of the University of Westminster and Margaret Street will be on your left in a moment. Nearly there, I'm walking up Margaret Street to All Saints Church, which really is here. You can't see it, it's tucked away, which is hard to believe when you get up to it because it has a 200-foot spire. It's a church that has attracted great criticism and praise since it was built in 1859. But one of the first critics to write about it was the great Victorian John Ruskin. And of All Saints Church, he said, it is the first piece of architecture I have seen built in modern days, which is free from, which is all, free signs from all signs of timidity or incapacity. It challenges fearless comparison with the noblest work of any time. Having done this, we may do anything. There need be no limits to our hope or our confidence. If anything, I think he was underselling the church. This is one of the most powerful buildings in central London. An utter surprise. A high Victorian church hidden in a tiny garden courtyard. And there's the spire. Look at it. It truly is a surprise. It's an enormous spire, 200 feet tall, shooting up above the shops in Rag Trade District, and yet all but invisible when you're walking on the pavement. This is the garden courtyard of All Saints Market Street. It's a delightful place where you can sit down on old benches with the water tinkling from a little fountain, the flowers around you, and just rest from the bustle of Portland Place, Oxford Circus and Oxford Street. I'm going to go and talk to the vicar, Father Moses, you certainly can't leave this courtyard without having gone inside this church, and you'll soon see why. This is the interior of All Saints, Margaret Street. Instantly one starts to be quiet, and quite rightly so. This is one of the most um, holy or numinous that is deeply holy interiors in London. The building was opened in 1859 and it was a statement of intent by the architect, William Butterfield, about the revival of the high Catholic movement within the Church of England. And so the thing is a great mass of colour, of mosaics and tiles and lamps and incense and flowers and statues. And the whole idea, it's slightly gloomy but very rich, it's polychrome rich, many, many colours, is to bring you, the visitor, down to your knees. Father, we're inside All Saints Margaret Street now. It is, by any standards, one of the most extreme Victorian buildings of all. <laughs> has a wonderful spiritual sense, just created by the architecture, and yet it stands in this area, which fascinates me, of shops, shopping, rag trade, the whole panoply of getting and spending. Are you almost an outsider here? Well, I suppose it is one of the few buildings left around here which isn't dedicated to the making of money. Uh, very few people live in this parish now. When it was founded, 5,000 people did, because it was a, a slum. 
but it's an area which has changed in character over the years and become, as you say, rag trade, but increasingly dominated by the media. So we have lots of PR companies and film and TV production companies and that kind of thing. Uh, but we keep it open every day for people who are involved in all those walks of life so that they can come in not simply to enjoy the architecture, splendid as it is, but also so that they might find it as a place of prayer and quiet in a place where there is very little quiet at all. Who comes here now to regular services? All sorts of people um, from all over the world, from all over London, uh, from all over Britain. But people come here and you know just look in, and they end up being baptized and confirmed, or making their confession, or coming back to church when they've been away for many years. But because clearly the building does have an effect on people, doesn't it? And anyone I mention the church to say, "Do go and have a look," and they say, "Well, where is it?" I said, "It's just near Oxford Circus," and they say, "There's no church there, is there?" They don't know. You say, go and look. And when they go in, they come back almost raving. (laughs) Yes. Well, it is a bit of a hidden gem, uh, rather difficult to find, but uh, once you have discovered it, you can't ignore it. Certainly, you either, you may not like it, but you can't ignore it. When people walk into this church, I think many of them might instantly suffer from a kind of visual overload. It's such a rich experience, aesthetically, architecturally. Is there one point in the church you might say, here's a good place to stand and look and pause before venturing around this great Victorian melodrama? Mm. Well, I've been, I've been here for 15 years, and I keep seeing things I haven't seen before. So you're never going to get everything. But probably just come inside the door and look up and then move into the nave and stand towards the back at the crossing and look forward. And your eye will take in more things than you might have time to look at and then then turn around and look at the great west window with the light streaming in through it during the day. I'm walking out of All Saints Margaret Street now, and of course you can hear the bells of the church chiming away. It's still very much an active church. I'm turning right down Margaret Street, past the rag trade shops again, and then I guess it's across the road, turn left down Great Titchfield Street, and that will take us to Oxford Street. Marketplace down to your right, a lovely old what was a lovely old market square today, a place you can sit outside and eat and drink. This is very much an area of cafes during the day. This is sandwich land. As you get to the southern end of Great Titchfield Street, you'll find yourself on a pedestrian area and you can see the sign for Oxford Street straight ahead of you. Oh, this is Oxford Street itself, one of the world's busiest, most intensely shopified streets in the world. It's not quite a high street, it's more a great canyon of chain shops. The real joy, though, is nipping off from either side are these intriguing grids or mazes of streets. Grids to the north, mazes to the south. Cross over the road, there's a pedestrian island here. 
turn right. The street's just over a mile long and it's shopping from one end to the other. Some people have thought, why not put a great glazed roof over it and turn the whole thing into a, the biggest shopping mall in the world? As you near Oxford Circus Tube Station, look to your left down Hills Place and you'll find one of the strangest buildings here. It's like a silk screen that's bursting out of the side of the street. It's some sort of office and it's been designed by the architect Amanda Levitt. It is such a strange facade. I've got to go and have a look to remind myself what it's made of. It's glass and steel. It's a shimmering wall that's, I, I notice like it's as if you've um, stretched a piece of perspex or rubber or blown a balloon up in a strange abstract way. What a funny thing, but it really does add contemporary character to this rather dark little alleyway off Oxford Street. I'm approaching Oxford Circus Tube Station now, which um, still has some of its old liver-coloured tiled buildings. Very delightful one on the corner. You can see the old Edwardian sign on the building. Look, here it comes, Oxford Circus Station. The street name, though, there you're looking for is Argyle Street. That's on the corner of the station building. Turn left onto Argyle Street, which is a pedestrian street. Look down the end, straight away. What a surprise. There seems to be a great Tudor or Elizabethan Palace at the end. In fact, it's Liberty's, the famous shop. I'm looking for something that we've all known, perhaps from childhood, either in myth or reality. It's a theatre called the Palladium. It's quite a surprise, because it is an old-fashioned thing. Old-fashioned in the sense of the architecture. It looks like a Roman temple set into the wall with its great one, two, three, four, five, six Corinthian columns. But the surprising thing about the London Palladium, with its old-fashioned Roman-style entrance, is that the building changes. It's like scene changes architecture as you walk down the street. Because at the end, you think, what's going on there? There's a really powerful, shining, black marble building. And if you look up, with this highly decorative top, a cornice covered in beautiful Art Deco patterns. And this is an extension built by, designed by the American skyscraper architect, Raymond Hood, in what was then the latest Art Deco fashion. Now, I wonder where the best spot to view this building is. Really, if you come to the end of Argyle Street and have a look at the main entrance, I think that's it. You get this edge is what you want. Emma, you, you work in this building. Do you ever look up at it as you walk past? This one, yes, but I think it gets daunted by that one over there. Well, I it is across <laughs> yeah. the road. Yeah. What happens if I point you up there? Can you... Blimey, I have to say, I've, n I've never noticed that before, no. no yeah, could, no, I'll look no, out no. for it now. OK. Who's it by? Is Raymond it... Hood. Raymond. He was a New York architect for the 1920s, 30s, who designed skyscrapers in New York. OK. Amazing, that. and then he did this. turn right past the bottom of Argyle Street onto Great Marlborough Street and I'm walking along past Liberty towards Regent Street straight ahead. I'm turning right 
from Great Marlborough Street into Regent Street, walking up towards Oxford Circus. Now I'm walking down Hanover Street on my way to Hanover Square. And on the left-hand side of Hanover Square is the centre, in a way, a magnet of the British fashion industry. It's Vogue House, and that's where the magazine Vogue's published. And this is where fashion critics, fashion models, the supermodels, the celebrities, the business people come to talk about shoes and frocks and dresses and what's in and what's out and what indeed is the Vogue. The interesting thing about Vogue House is that it is the centre of the fashion world and it's fashion in one way or another that drives the commerce of Oxford Street and sets, in a way, the tone for the whole area. What I hope to find at Vogue House, and I'm here to talk to Dolly Jones, editor of Vogue.com, is something about the spirit of the area. Why don't you go into Hanover Square Gardens and sit down? It's a very lovely place to while away a bit of time. I am beautiful. very much a, six, a typical 60s building, in fact, and it rather beautifully stands out amongst all the arch architecture in, the, in this immediate area by being exactly that, not, not very much what you would associate with Vogue. I don't think it's not a very beautiful building. But on the other hand, as a sort of fashion statement, I quite like the fact that it is a 60s building because sixties the 60s was such a strong decade for fashion. So it's almost as if here we are making a strong statement amid you know, all the beauty and all the action and, and new development going on all the time around us. Uh, Dolly, I like that because whenever I walk past Vogue House, still in my mind, and I think that's true of lots of Londoners, I can't help thinking of it in a 60s way. I keep suspecting to see a young David Bailey charging out of the drawer, Twiggy going in. I wonder why that stays with us. I don't know that it was a deliberate attempt to have Vogue House as this sort of, you know, timeless building in the middle. It was just a very beautiful building. I know in 1958 when the building first housed Condé Nast, um, the publications on the first three floors, Condé Nast was hugely excited to have the building here and, and be in the centre of, of, of London. And it's exciting because, of course, we're so near Bond Street where all the fashion authorities are, are selling their, their beautiful clothes. And then it, the other side of the building is Oxford Street, where, of course, all the high street is going on. And on Oxford Street is the London College of Fashion, um, which is literally a few hundred yards away from Vogue House. And that's where London is so known for being a hub of new ideas and student designers, you know, then going all across the world to work in international fashion houses. So the fact we're near London College of Fashion, we're right next to the high street fashion and right next to the high, high fashion is really appropriate. And this somehow is one of the last little refuges of a very elegant, smart, fashionable London. I think you're right. I think all, all around here from, you know, the Burlington Arcade on off Bond Street and, and Vogue House here, I think it is very much a sort of bastion of, of old style. But new style and new ideas are often re-representations or re-translations of old ideas. So, I mean, fashion designers, for example, look to architecture and look to art and look to all the classics to reinterpret into clothes that are relevant to wear today. So, in a way, it's quite nice that we're in this kind of... It's not an old-fashioned place, it's just a place with a great history that can be re-translated into the modern day, I think. Let, let, let the bass kick. 
And that relationship between the other arts and fashion is an intriguing one, isn't it? I mean, I mean, even architecture and fashion have had their connections, haven't they? Yes, and technology. I think, you know, students are constantly trying to push the boundaries and, and look upon, look to all of life to inspire themselves and bring new original ideas that will allow them to be recognised on the sort of international stage as a, as a brand that's, that's backward-looking, forward-thinking and incredibly innovative and creative. But you know, also there are there are, if you if you look up as you are encouraging people to do, you see um, above the shops, even on South Moulton Street, you can see there are little tailors. There are tiny little businesses, very very no frills. That you know, we wander down there if you need a, a, a dress altered or a hem fixed or whatever it might be. It's not all completely the glossiness of the of the ground floor. Look up a level, and there are all sorts of little businesses, you know, and activity, working away. That's a lovely thought. So yes, I would ask people to look up, to look at you know, artworks on buildings and to see the way the cornice lines are on buildings and the windows and the pediments and so on. But that's fascinating. You'd say so there's, there's craft still at work, everyday craft still at work, even in an expensive area like this. Yes, very much so, very much so. The, the actual workmanship is going on of the couturiers often. You can see them all in the windows. The, the upper windows look very much less glamorous than the ones below because they're you know, people just hives of activity, which is fantastic. That's why it's great to be here. Dolly, let's think where Folk House sits on one side of Hanover Square and therefore it has, you know, it's quite a powerful little building and it has a relationship to this wider part of London. I wonder if there's any influence or feel that the area has in the way it looks, its buildings, its architecture, its squares, on what happens here. I think there is a mood that you are in the centre of things here. I think, you know, perhaps it's just I work here, but Vogue feels like it's really in the hub and the heartbeat of fashion. And whether that's because we influence or are influenced, I think, there's, you know, it goes both ways. Let the base so where are you off to next? Now I'm off to John Lewis, which is, of course, one of the most popular shops for everybody in Oxford Street. But there's something quite special on the side of the building. No? No, I don't know what it is. I want to say it's the London College of Fashion, which I think is down the other side. There's a big modern, or 1950s, sculpture by Barbara Hepworth called Winged Figure. No, you haven't noticed. No. (laughs) I've been far too busy, obviously. (laughs) So Dolly's never heard of it, but let's go and have a look for this mysterious artwork. Head up Hanover Square and then into Harewood Place, straight in front of you. And now look, as you walk up Harewood Place, keep your eyes ahead but slightly to the left. Look up a fraction and there it is. Look at that. That's one of those great artworks you might expect standing in one of the largest halls in Tate Modern. It's this great sculpture by Barbara Hepworth, the winged figure. It's very impressive. It's on the side of the John Lewis department store. What I need to do is cross Oxford Street and the John Lewis store is on the left, on the corner of Oxford Street and Hollis Street. And here you can get a really good look of the winged figure. It's even carved underneath. There's a crib sheet there in the side of the building. Winged figure, 1963 by Barbara Hepworth. Have you ever noticed that? Oh, what is it? It's a winged figure. Well, do you like it? Oh, yeah, it's beautiful. I wish I'd seen it before, actually. Are you sure? It looks more like a body to me. There's legs, armpits. This place is really commercial to me. I really don't expect to find art here. Do you know what? I noticed that for the first time today. 
Did you really? As I was walking up, because I was thinking it was it was done in like 1963, and I was thinking I've never ever noticed it before. One of my friends came to London for the first time, and she kept looking up and going, "Oh, you, you should look up more." So I kind of thought that's what I should do. So that, I think that's maybe why I saw it. Barbara Hepworth was one of the most important artists in mid-20th century Britain. She was a contemporary of Henry Moore and she worked with Moore and she worked in a similar style. So a lot of her great works, whether in stone, marble or metal, are large abstracts, often with great sections cut out from them, sometimes held together like this one at John Lewis with great strands of steel that look like wire pulling, in this case, wings together. Hepworth worked a lot in metal and... Here she is talking about it. Metal has an entirely different kind of structure. And as I have said, it took me nearly 30 years to find a way of using it. I needed to understand it in order to be stimulated by it. I came to enjoy its very exciting properties, experimenting with sheet metal. I bent and twisted the sheets under tension until I found out the nature of its construction and forced it to express what I wanted by its nature and not against its nature. I worked entirely by instinct, cutting, shaping and rubbing the metal into what I wanted until the final moment of bending and twisting the whole thing. Either it worked or all was lost. There was no possible retreat. I found the most intense pleasure in this new adventure in material. Barbara Hepworth is a very instinctive artist. She was a very passionate woman who lived her life very intensely and you can see that in the art she created the wing figure itself on the side of John Lewis is extraordinarily tense object and yet very elegant too and that rather sums her up by working instinctively I react to life around me the urgent need is to build our lives on strong foundations I try to make sculptures which will affirm and reaffirm the magic of the will to life and the miracle of rebirth and continuity in the universe. The physical and sensuous joy in carding all these materials is a way of giving praise. And, as a woman, I can only say that it is an act of faith and an urge which is as inevitable as being feminine. So here's Barbara Hepworth's wing figure fluttering up on the side of the John Lewis building. It's as if it might carry all our hopes and fears and desires somehow up and away from the everyday commercial concerns of Oxford Street into the London skyscape. Well, that's a poetic thought, of course, but I imagine good old prosaic Oxford Street would be rumbling on selling cheap goods for the next century or more. And uh, in a way, stopping us looking out, because that requires us to stop all this 
bustling and stop hurrying and lift our eyes up. It's a difficult thing to do in such a busy city centre. But I've been trying to do that with you on this walk, to get us all to look up and to look beyond the obvious in a very obvious everyday part of London, a part of London where really people come here to work and to shop and to eat and to be entertained and have very little time to stop and stare. But when we do, what a great thing it is.